This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Amy Dunphy. Now, the... War in Ukraine, where Russia has invaded and done some terrible things, continues. It's bloody, it's brutal, it's grinding, and it's not going anywhere fast, but it's been going nowhere fast for six months now. And one of the ways in which the West thought that they could punish Russia were sanctions, economic sanctions, and that project continues Of course, the Russians have their own means of making the European economy suffer through energy. And to discuss where this particular aspect of this conflict is, we're joined now by Konstantin Gurdjieff, one of our best economists. He's Russian, of course. He is adjunct assistant professor at TCD, Trinity College, Dublin. He lived in Ireland for a long time, a very popular commentator. He's also now the associate professor at the University of of Northern Colorado. Constantine, thank you very much for joining us from Colorado. You're Russian, of course. This is your homeland. When we spoke before about the sanctions and the possible effect of them, you thought maybe around June it might kick in and it might sort of work. As we look at things now, today the Bank of England announced inflation at 10.1%. The projection from the governor is that it will go as high as 13%. Our own EU inflation is around 8%. How is what we might call, for shorthand, the economic war going? Because Russia appears to be surviving. And yes, the people there appear to be stoic and willing to survive. They don't appear to have the needs that Western Europe have, the people have, the expectations and all of that. How is that going, Constantine, in your view? Well, you've mentioned, Eamon, um, and thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Um, uh, but um, you mentioned uh, first the uh, UK and then, of course, Europe as well and the United States and the advanced economies of the West suffering from the structural, as now even the central banks admit uh, them to be um, inflationary pressures across the economies. Uh, we've seen, for example, in the United States, a uh, precipitous decline in productivity growth in the last few months. Uh, that is going uh, against the kind of grain of the traditional view of inflationary pressures, which are usually associated with growth, investment, and productivity expansion. 
periods, uh, we're seeing now exact contrary to it. So it's a very strange economy out in the West right now. We as economists are struggling to pin it down and explain it. So when you ask the question of comparing and juxtaposing the two sets of the economies, um, the Western economies on one hand and the Russian economy on the other hand, uh, which are vastly different, vastly distinct, and quite often what we call orthogonal, or in other words, quite independent from each other. Um, I don't think that comparison can be made, really, to be honest. Uh, who is winning the war? No one is winning the war. Yes. Everyone is losing this war. Yes. Some of my colleagues, for example, a um, couple of the people from the Financial Times that um, I've been in touch with recently, um, they think that the West is starting to lose the economic war in the confrontation in the commodities markets and inputs markets. I personally don't think so, to be honest, because I think that you have to look at both Western problems today separately from the Russian problems today. And the Russian economy today is really strange. It's very much unexpected, unpredicted. The best description I've seen of it was given by one of the analysts on CNBC a couple of weeks ago, and they said that the economy is floundering, not drowning. Yes, And it's exactly that. So you've mentioned the deadline that I gave you in one of our conversations earlier this year of around the end of June, July, to see this, the beginnings of the serious pain and serious pressures. And in a way, hey, I was right, not by virtue of uh, knowledge, but rather probably by accident, um, because what we got here now is that the GDP figures for the second quarter in Russia show a contraction year on year of 4%, which is sharp contraction, yes? But at the same time, um, there are a couple of things to it, yes? I mean, this is just headline number for the second quarter. In the first quarter, Russian economy managed to grow at half of a percentage point. So as a result of that, the overall decline over the first six months of the year was 3.52% in real terms. We would think on our end sitting here that this is a fairly significant uh, crisis, economic crisis. A Russian economy is in the recession. But on the other hand, the expectations, consensus expectations by Bloomberg analysts um, going into the second quarter results uh, for Russia were suggesting the decline of 5% for the first half of 2022. Instead, it is 3.5%. So shallower decline significantly than what was expected. You mentioned also um, that the Russian society generally is capable of weathering a lot of pressure a lot of pain. Because and of their history, uh, Constantine, and their disposition. It, it's, of course, it is history. It is also a reality of the Russian society being always, um, you know, in one way or another, ruled by sometimes more benign, sometimes less benign, but always by authoritarian um, systems yes. of governance. So in this kind of a society, you would have always a kick to the bottom, to the uh, back in the economy in any sort of crisis, whether it's a military crisis or a geopolitical crisis or it's pure economic crisis, it's the ordinary people who always suffer. So this society has developed significant resilience to this type of suffering. So 3.5% contraction over six months to the Russian society is like, mm, okay, yes. yeah, meh, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's very interesting. Um, there's also, we have to also remember that a lot of this is also Russia experiencing significant inflation uptick as well, yes? And part of it is driven by the same factors and same forces that the rest of the world is experiencing. Part of it is self-made, self-imposed. So in this environment, having 3.5% contraction in the economy is not as catastrophic as I was expected, expecting yes. when you and I were talking about that earlier. 
but that's just headline figures. Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at, for example, unemployment, unemployment is the latest data we have is 3.9% historic low. Employment levels are stable at 59.8%. And this is the data through June. Uh, so as a result of that, again, even on that end, you don't see significant pain. But again, this is headline figures. And in the Irish economy, we know very well that headline figures don't tell the entire story. So if you were to ask me really how I would summarize the Russian economy, current state and the prospects into the future, I would say there are three parts to it, three headlines to it. The first one is there is a real pain in the range of sectors in the economy, namely household consumption, household investment. Those have fallen off the cliff. As a result of that, imports are sharply down. And that is in line with the sanctions, but it also is absorbing the pain of sanctions. Yes. On the other hand, there are real gains in the range of the sectors in the economy to date. These are short-term gains. Oil and gas, fertilizer producers, other raw materials, food commodities, food, uh, food shipments, food exports, all are going through the roof. They're booming. Yes. And then the third one is there's a real pain in the long run. And that is a structural pain. It's a long-run pain. It's the pain which will see the Russian economy being you know, increasingly isolated from the centers of new technologies, from the centers of the machinery and equipment production. And we are starting to see some nibbles of that, some indicators of that. But, you know, Russia is responding to it. There are some strategic responses that they're adopting to it. And uh, it's too early, really, to see the serious pain building up there. Yes. And an economist at the University of Birmingham, John Bryson, he says Russia's isolation from the global supply networks is damaging its research and development and its manufacturing system. He cites as evidence for that that the nation's Russia's new sanctions-proof ladder car comes without airbags. The anti-lock braking system isn't there either. Emissions restriction technologies aren't there and satellite navigation and modern seatbelt systems are also not there. Yes, and you can also look at the, um, uh, you know, if you want the kind of even more headline-worthy uh, uh, type of innovation shortfall, uh, Russian uh, research, major research center uh, in new technologies, Skolkova, um, in Moscow, has unveiled about a week ago a new um computerized system um, that is a tablet-based computer um, that is supposedly extremely innovative and dull, but in reality, it looks like a copycat of the existing Chinese uh, models of computers. So yes, that is correct. There is some significant bottlenecks building up in terms of the supply of the components, electronic components, in supply of the new equipment, um, in supply of new machinery. Industrial investment is all the way back thrown by the sanctions. And China has stepped in somewhat into this void to yes. help Russia, but not sufficiently enough as far as we can see so far. The question of energy perhaps is the most pressing with the winter approaching and also with the degree to which Germany in particular depends for its energy on Russia. And they've slowed the flow of energy down, I think, to 20%. And... Russia can do whatever it wants to do or needs to do with energy as autumn and winter approach. How do you foresee that? I mean, the equation often cited in relation to energy is, yes, they need the money from the energy they can sell to Europe, and therefore they will keep supplying it. Mm. But how do you see that playing out? Because 
it's critical, obviously, that in winter we're looking at a different picture than the one we've lived with, even for the last six months since the war started. Several interesting things here. Uh, One of the things is that this deeply strategic response by Russia to the sanctions has been this, what we call, BRICS pivot, reorientation of its core trade, uh, especially in energy commodities, uh, towards the uh, BRICS countries, which is a block which is growing in terms of its size, you know, and so we kind of, you know, think of BRICS as Brazil, Russia, India, and China. Now it also includes quasi-formally South Africa, and there are, you know, movements of food to try to get Indonesia into it and so forth. Yes. So in recent months, both China and India have shifted significantly their imports of energy towards Russian markets because they're getting good discounts uh, from Russia and they are... um, able to get more what they perceive to be more secure um, and price balanced or you know lower price volatility shipments of energy. So as a result of that, Russia has been much more effective in shifting its sales of energy commodities away from Europe than Europe has been in reducing its dependence yes. on Russian gas. And of course, Europe has very significant structural problems. Um, the those problems are actually exacerbated by these summer conditions currently, and I would argue they will be exacerbated by the conditions going into the winter as well. And this is an interesting new argument completely. I don't think it has been really voiced significantly in the media, you know, though it has been looked at by the analysts in Europe. So here's here's the things that we are facing. Um, uh, European rivers are currently, uh, major European rivers and waterways are currently at you know near historic lows yes. due to the drought conditions. That significantly restricts ability of Europe to generate nuclear power. In fact, nuclear power plants in Europe has be, have been now exempt uh, for the short-term period uh, from the emissions um, restrictions and from the uh, safety restrictions for operations of the um, cooling systems, okay, because of that. It's not, of course, a threat to safety, but it just shows to you that there is a bit of a problem there. Outside of nuclear, there isn't really anything other than coal and gas that can supply uh, stable enough generation capacity. Yes. Okay? Uh, hydro is also sinking in Europe as well. As a result of that, we're going into the winter, not only with lower storage of gas from Russia, not only with the potential for volatility in gas supplies from Russia, which is pretty much present there, as you mentioned uh, already, but also in addition to it, with reduced capacity perhaps of generating nuclear as well. Now, winter. There are different perceptions and different uh, analysis uh, coming out from different sources in terms of how bad the winter can be expected to be in Europe this year. I was just reading yesterday the National Weather Service forecasts, uh, long-term forecasts in the United States, uh, not being interested in European affairs, but looking actually at our Western situation in terms of the water supply and demand. But what I noticed is that there is a projection now for an unprecedented third year in a row La Nina effect in um, Western Hemisphere. La Nina effect in Western Hemisphere during the winter is associated with the shortfall of uh, of snow fall and milder temperatures during the winter in the western hemisphere northwestern hemisphere and significantly harsher weather conditions in the northern 
parts of the um, northeastern United States and also northern Europe. So in other words, we might be staring at the possibility of pretty harsh winter coming our way in Europe. Right. And in that case, of course, it's not just supply of gas, not just supply of energy, but also the demand for energy are going to be pressure points, major pressure points. Let me ask you specifically about Ireland, Constantine, and our economy, and indeed, to some extent, our energy, we can help ourselves. But our economy functions much differently to the British economy. Our GDP grows strong. Pascal Donoghue, the Minister of Finance, appears to be doing a good job. And in terms of the nation's economic health, how immune can we be from some of the worst inflationary problems? For example, European inflation lower than British, not significantly, but every percentage point counts. But how self-sufficient can Ireland be with the tax from the multinational companies, biggest tax take, and all of that, the, the perception and perhaps the reality that we are economically stronger and in a position to, as it were, make ourselves less vulnerable than other European countries, or is that just nonsense? Um, well, first of all, you and I started the conversation before we even went on air today talking about uh, the current finance minister. Um, and um, I don't mind reiterating my view on that. I think he has done absolutely fantastic job in terms of managing finances so far. Um, that said, there is no minister in Ireland, nor the cabinet in Ireland, which will ever be able to uh, insulate Ireland from the global shocks. Right. Ireland is extremely open yes. economy. It's a very small economy, which has neither sovereignty over its own monetary policies, nor even sovereignty over much of its fiscal policies. You mentioned tax take, for example, and you mentioned the multinationals. Um, there is nothing that Pascal Donoghue can do to insulate Ireland from the potential shocks to that. And those shocks are going to be common. And they are not only coming from the short-term disruptions in global economy due to inflationary pressures and growth pressures and productivity pressures, but they also are coming from the longer-term realignment of the supply chains, some of which is beneficial to Ireland in the long run, I believe, um, some of which is going to challenge Ireland, but also due to changes in the taxation systems globally, due to re global reforms in terms of the uh, financial report and financial compliance and so forth. So Ireland is very much exposed to the global pressures. So far, those pressures have been, in a way, conducive to Ireland having upside on its GDP side. Yes. Well, you and I know, and the Minister of Finance knows as well, that the Irish GDP is divorced from reality, yes. you know, purely economic construct of a number. Um, in reality, what we are witnessing is that the fertilizer prices are up. Ireland is not sufficient in fertilizer. Yes. Um, feed, uh, animal feed prices are up. Ireland is not sufficient in animal feed as well, especially if we're going to see volatility in the weather patterns. Yes. yes. Um, between, say, droughts and heat waves and colder spells and things like that. Um, Ireland is not sufficient in production of food. I would never advocate for Ireland to be sufficient in any production of anything, to be honest, because I do believe in benefits of trade and diversification. Um, but that said, you know, Ireland is not sufficient there, so it will feel the pain there. Energy. Ireland already is second most expensive electricity market in Europe. Um, I think it is also second most expensive in the total energy. 
as well costs uh, in Europe. So it it is experiencing these pressures as well, and will continue experiencing them. Perhaps not to the extent that uh, Great Britain does. Okay. And perhaps not to the extent that Italy is facing right now, primarily yes. because Italy's energy mix is so much more geared towards yes. gas. You know, but you know, Ireland will experience that in the longer run. Um, you know, there is no escaping these pains, um, and in the longer run, the only solution to these pains for Ireland is to develop more diversified uh, economy to develop more diversified business base, to develop indigenous businesses, develop in indigenous investment. Um, and again, I think people like Pascal Donahue actually do understand that and get that point. Yeah. Now, to what extent the rest of the cabinet does, that's a, an open question. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let me ask you about Europe and in particular the solidarity that is or is not there. You mentioned Italy where Mario Draghi stepped down as prime minister. He was regarded as a safe pair of hands. He's a former governor of the Central Bank, the European Central Bank, president of the Central Bank, former Goldman Sachs, of course, as everybody appears to be these days. <laughs> but he stepped down, and now there is a possibility in Italy that you have a very radical right government. That's How right, yeah. destabilizing could that be for the European Union? Oh, it can be hugely destabilizing. And in fact, even uh, you know, you know, the central bank, the European Central Bank, currently understands how destabilizing that can be. Um, the we are dealing now in Italian politics with the uh, September elections coming up. 
in which most likely outcome by a mile would be a strong majority, uh, which would be quite an unexpected outcome by uh, traditional historical standards of Italian politics, uh, given to the um, right block of parties, yes, uh, led by the Fratelli d'Italia, uh, which is effectively a neo-fascist yes. uh, party. They don't like, of course, being called that. Um, and of course, we have to distinguish between neo-Nazi versus neo-fascist here. But all of that historical comparatives and everything else aside, it is a right-wing um populist uh, party that is capable of unifying uh, Italian right. Um, if that happens, there will be a significant risk of Italy pivoting away from the core European kind of, if you want, positions yeah. on Italian fiscal stance, uh, on Italian economic reforms, um, and also um, potentially on many other matters, such as, for example, um, environmental policies, European environmental policies, uh, European energy uh, security policies, and so forth. Now, one thing that we don't expect is that Fratelli d'Italia is not a party that it would be pro-Russia party in Italy. So we're not going to expect really currently, uh, we do not expect uh, Italy to swing away from its uh, effectively pretty strong position um, in trying to contain Russia and to uh, trying to address the war in Ukraine uh, that uh, Mario Draghi has adopted, we don't see, we don't expect that to happen, to that shift away from that position. But in pretty much everything else, there will be an amplified juxtaposition between the Italian politics and the European or Brussels politics. Of course, this is something we've seen play out during the Greek crisis, yes, uh, under the, you know, um, the government there. Uh, but Italy is not Greece. Italy is the third largest economy yes. in the Eurozone. It is structurally important to the Eurozone. Um, it is structurally important to European economy as well, outside of the monetary policies, as well as fiscal policies. So as a result of that, uh, we are looking at the political crisis effectively, potentially being triggered by Italy. European Central Bank recognizes it in their own latest statements and their new mechanisms to address the fragmentation, potential fragmentation of the monetary policy during the period of them normalizing, quote unquote, interest rates and um, their own balance sheet. Um, those, of course, are targeting um, some sort of the center, center right, perhaps, government in Italy um, and uh, compliant government in Italy. Um, but whether that's going to materialize or not is a very big question right now. Would they be an ally of the Hungarians, Viktor Orban? Would the Italians... Yes, a, I don't think there is alliances as such, because you can look at, for example, yes. the uh, relationship between another probably most right-wing government uh, in Europe today and uh, Viktor Orban's uh, leadership in Hungary, that of Poland. Um, and yes. uh, there isn't really love lost between the two. Uh, there used to be much closer lines before the war in Ukraine, and then the war in, the, in Ukraine has uprooted that relationship between the two. Um, so Italian right wing is probably going to be much more closer to Orban than it is to Polish uh, right wing. Polish right wing is more kind of religiously driven conservatism. Yes. And constitutional conservatism versus uh, Hungarian right-wing movement uh, of Orban is really about more populist right-wing, yes. and it's very similar to what we are witnessing in Italy. Just let me ask you a final question, Constantine, about Germany. Analysts at Deutsche Bank point to the fact 
that Germany is the most highly dependent on Russian gas. They are predicting a recession for Germany this year, and they are the most worried about a Russian gas embargo, which is being talked about now in what they call a tap-remains-turned-off scenario. They expect rationing of gas, leading to a GDP slump of between 5 and 6% in 2023. Mm. Now, Germany is the, the most important in many ways country in Europe economically and in other ways too. How threatening would that be if they were to have a GDP slump between 5 and 6%? That would be sharp recession. Um, it would be pretty, you know, deep structural recession as well uh, from uh, Germany's point of view. Does it mean recession for all in Europe? Um, yeah, of course, it will have a knock-on effect as well. I mean, remember that recession is kind of, you know, when we're talking about this, you know, recessions, we're talking about real terms, inflation-adjusted terms. When you have inflation running at 10%, in order to have a 6%, uh, you know, recession in real terms, you have to have really big collapse in terms of the um, yes. GDP in nominal terms. So, um, whether that's going to happen or not is an open question. We don't know. Uh, we don't even know what would be the position or strategic view in Russia in terms of the gas supplies to Germany uh, during the winter. Um, one thing is pretty clear is that European Union has declared that they want to stop purchasing Russian gas and Russian oil. They declared that comes December this year, uh, they will impose sanctions on energy sector in Russia. So, I mean, our expectation sitting back that, hey, you know, until we decide in Europe that we don't want your gas anymore and close the pipe on our end, yes. you, Russia, need to ship, uh, ship us all of the gas that we need. That's kind of a, is a bit also a cognitive dissonance form, a yes. pretty deep one as well, you know. I mean, if you tell your other trading partner uh, on the other side that you don't want them to be your partner, well, expect them to act as such as well, you know. Um, so the reality is this is really a situation where we're not only witnessing the potential risk of pretty significant uh, economic uh, crisis uh, coming on foot of that, but we're also witnessing these same dynamics are also tearing apart the previously unified response of Europe yes. uh, to the uh, crisis in Ukraine and to the Russian war in Ukraine, yes? And in particular, what comes to mind right now is that Germany is painfully aware of the fact that the Baltic states, Czech and uh, Poland, uh, have, and Finland has endorsed that as well, uh, have stopped any sort of migration from Russia uh, of people fleeing Kremlin regime um, into those countries. So as a result of that, in a way, uh, those states are helping Kremlin and helping Putin uh, to economically um, out, you know, outmaneuver out the likes of Germany. That opens up, in effect, a possibility for Russia to to use even more aggressively energy as a strategic tool. Uh, and Germany is aware of that. Yes, and you pointed out earlier that the Chinese, India, and others are on Correct, yeah. on Russia's side. So we're we're not looking here at little Russia facing the big West. We're looking here at a very large authoritarian bloc. 
that will that will be supportive. And vast and no, well, a bit like India wouldn't be authoritarian quite. It's a bit populist. Uh, Brazil is not authoritarian; it's kind of populist as well. Uh, what's important here is to realize that more than half, more than two thirds of the population of the world is living in the countries that did not impose any sanctions on Russia. Yes. Their incomes are growing. Their economies are growing. Their demand for goods uh, and services are growing. So, for example, Indian banks in the last few weeks, literally, uh, have been aggressively subscribing to the Russian payment system that is designed to bypass Western payment systems. Right. All of that is signifying of the fact that this pivot that Kremlin has adopted in recent months towards the BRICS in terms of its um, trade and investment partnerships is certainly kind of, you know, if not fully working yet, but presenting a potential viable alternative uh, to trading directly with the West. A final question, Konstantin. In the Lex column in the Financial Times, which I know you you will know of and is generally uh, influential, it has been estimated that Ukraine's post-war reconstruction is predicted to cost $750 billion. That's five times as much as the U.S. committed to Western European recovery after the Second World War. And that may be an underestimate. We're definitely in dark times here. This is we are in dark times. And I mean, I think the number that the Lex column puts to that is much more realistic than the number we've seen Kiev put into that. Yes. Because we've seen Kiev before talking about two trillion plus. Um, whatever the number is in the end, it will be somewhere probably between seven fifty and at least a trillion dollars. And that will be just the beginning in terms of the reconstruction. Uh, Ukrainian economy will need structural supports for a long period of time. And yes. by the way, it deserves those. Don't take me wrong. Yes. I'm generally not a big fan of subsidies, but in this case, those subsidies are fully justified. There is a huge potential that Ukraine has, both economically and socially. Um, and uh, the West, in particular Europe, uh, should seize that opportunity and should help Ukraine beyond the doubts. I only wish that Russia can participate constructively in that, but I'm, of course that is, you know, currently off the table. Yes. Um, uh, you know, I, you know, it's unfortunate from my point of view that it is off the table. Um, but we are in a, a reconstruction process. Is not dark times, by the way. I think that is actually yes. an opportunity time. Yes. I think that is the bright time. The dark times that we are in right it's now. between now and then. Correct. Absolutely. And the level of destruction that is being wrecked in Ukraine, the level of deaths in Ukraine, the level of deaths even amongst the Russians as well, yes. looking back at Russia, it will need its own reconstruction and it will need its own rebuilding, yes. um, both social, political change and reforms uh, for decades to come. Um, all of that level of destruction, that's the dark times. Okay, Konstantin, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Konstantin Gurdjieff is adjunct assistant professor at Trinity College and uh, is based also at the University of Colorado, where he is associate professor and an economist. Thank you, Constantine, very much for joining us. Take care of yourself. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Eamon. We're very grateful to Constantine, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Hey. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.